It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1990 film Slacker. once again talking about another kind of indie flick or i guess not even kind of this is a super indie flick i should say uh, but slacker so when did you see this eric it's a good question uh you mean other than a few days ago i'm assuming <laughs> yeah the first time hard to say exactly but i have some memory signposts to help help me kind of narrow it down so 95 is when Pulp Fiction, or thereabouts, Pulp Fiction came out on VHS. I didn't see it at the movies. I saw it when it came out, wide release on VHS. I saw Pulp Fiction for the first time, and it changed my whole movie life forever. Um, I don't know if I've ever dictated this to you or on one of your podcasts, but um, prior to seeing Pulp Fiction, I feel like my whole entire life, I just took movies in just like anybody. Uh, does you just watch the next thing and you like some and you don't like others but I never took any particular movie very seriously there's just the ones I liked and I didn't like um, and I saw Pulp Fiction and for the first time I had this like experience where where there, oh there's so much more to a movie than than just following a story um, there's so much more that can go into it and so after Pulp Fiction and the experience I had I just started looking everywhere, like what are other movies that people are talking about, um, whether they're current day or you know older classics, whatever. What are the movies that that people say you know are elevated, you know, uh, for whatever reason within the medium of film? Uh, and so around this time, I was reading a lot of articles um, mentioning this movie Slacker, um, which had already been out, of course, for a few years. Um, but I thought, okay, well, I should go seek this out because this is what the movie people or the movie community, like in in print, is talking about. So I went to go seek it out, and I probably found it for rental at Blockbuster. Um, and so I probably saw it around ninety five, ninety six. I'm guessing. Yeah, the right time for it. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's how it went. And I've seen it many, many times since, um, since that time. And but I will say, as many times as I've seen the movie, you know, I had very different feelings about it the first time I saw it, and then ten years later, after I saw it, and then of course now. But despite all the many viewings I had of it, 
I never looked deeper into the movie, like like the background or the behind the scenes type. You know, how was it made? Never researched it in any way, other than just watching it and taking it as is. Never really watched any special features or anything until now. Hmm. So I learned a lot of things for the first time this week that I never knew about this movie, even though I've seen it so many times before. Oh, cool. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, filling some air with that stuff because, <laughs> yeah, I watched it for the first time uh, just today. And, yeah, I, I gotta say I wasn't super impressed. Um, I, I watched his first film uh, the night before. Uh, what's it called? It's got a weird title again. Something to the effect of, like, you can't learn how to plow from just reading books. Yeah, it's impossible to learn to plow by reading reading a book, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and both these films, in their own way, kind of felt more like kind of experiments on film, like student films in their own way, and neither one of them really felt like a complete project. Both of them just kind of felt like trial runs, kind of like, because I, I think I told you I, I've been going through the movies by uh, David Cronenberg, and he put out two films, two student films, that felt nothing like this, but in their same way kind of like... Yes. I'm getting a sense of what he's going to become as a filmmaker, but these are very much like not him working as an actual filmmaker, just kind of trial run. My initial reaction to what you just said is that you're not alone. Like, There's a large segment of people who I think you're, you're mimicking or mirroring their first reaction to seeing this movie. So, so you're not alone in your thoughts. Uh, and I had very similar thoughts myself the very first time I saw it. Um... But, from my perspective now, uh, reacting to what you just said, I think you're like 95% on the money as a... Because I just finished watching um, the Plow movie for my first time earlier today. And I obviously had never seen it before. Didn't Wasn't even really aware of it. Um, and, I, and after listening to the commentary, especially for that, that one, I think you're 95% on the money. Uh, on what you just said about it and this one i can see how that description pertains to it but i think while he is you could say still experimenting or whatever uh this is this to me is is leagues advanced uh or like he's he's evolved significantly from um from plow a slacker and he even mentions in the commentary maybe on plow or or maybe it was on slacker i listened to both but <laughs> he mentions that because his next film after slacker is uh daisy confused and he says on one of the commentaries that everyone always says that his giant leap was from slacker to daisy confused in in in, in terms of filmmaking etc uh, mm-hmm. it's, and it's dramatic, like in budget, you know, the differences and everything. It's true, but he but he says himself that his major, major leap was really plow to this. And, and he kind of backs it up and explains why the chasm for him was much bigger uh, than from Slacker to Daisy Confused. Yeah, I mean, yeah, giant leap. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one, he's working with, you know, actual quality sound. I mean, there's barely any sound work in, or I guess there is sound work, but dialogue work in that first film. But the ones that is there is 
pretty poor. I mean, sometimes you can barely hear what's being said, and yeah, it's just. And why? And while I, why I think you're ninety five percent right on your comments on Plow specifically, because again, his from his own words, because he made tons and tons of shorts um, prior to Plow, and he said all of that was like, you know, like his film school basically to try to mm. figure out how to be a, an actual fully fledged director. And so he said he would do shorts and just focus like on one element. Like, I'm just going to focus on the lighting in this particular short. And in this other short, I'm going to work on um, like uh, doing shots on rails, uh, you know, for steadiness and movement. And, and in Plow, he says that was like his main focus was just like f- mainly just like framing shots, mm. uh, like a photographer. Makes sense. And he says that was kind of like his main focus of the whole movie. And he also says that he thinks it's like the last time he ever spent so much time because with Slacker and then everything else, because he got so much more into dialogue and character driven plots and things that he said he just kind of like never ever paid that much attention to like framing the perfect shot or all the other things that go involved in, in like cinematography. It was mainly he put it all into plow. <laughs> yeah, and there, there's some really quality work in there. I could see like oh, there's a good eye for a filmmaker here. It's just he's not he's not quite there yet. <laughs> right. Because right. that movie it was extremely extremely unengaging. Oh, yes, if I would have just been watching it without the commentary. Oh yeah, that that's rough. That's rough. Yeah, I tried. I tried but for the commentary definitely makes it worth it. Yeah, I watched it just straight for forty five minutes and I was like, I just cannot watch scenes of trains moving or buses driving any longer. Right. And so I just started editing. But I'm glad I listened to the commentary because then it gave me a, at least a small insight into Slacker that I had never known or couldn't have known before. Which was so one of the, my new revelations on this viewing, with the help of Plow, was that obviously the very beginning of Slacker, the first mm-hmm. character we're on is Richard Link- Linklater himself, um, and he's basically portraying the character from the previous movie, and so this is sort of like the epilogue of his character from the previous movie, getting back to Austin, and of course I would never know that because I didn't know about Plow and I didn't know what Plow was about. And I just thought that was a cool little thing. Yeah, I actually got really excited when I saw him. I was like, oh, hey, this is like, it's almost in a way a sequel to his first movie. In a way, or it kind of leads into it, yeah. And then we see that one guitar player that ended the Plow movie. We see him briefly in this. I was like, hey, there's another little fun little callback. Yeah. I was kind of curious if some of that stuff uh, continues on in his other movies. Because I really really don't have much experience with this director at all. I've only seen uh, four other films besides these two. But you haven't seen any of the talkies, I believe. You've just seen like his more mainstream Hollywood movies. Yeah, I've seen uh, Bad News Bears, which was right. not... A, I was not a fan of that movie at all. Never seen the remake. But... Um, I saw School of Rock. Yeah, I love the original, and that's why I was excited for that one. I was like, oh, Billy Bob Thornton's in this. This is going to be great. And then I was like, oh, no, not great. School of Rock, that was a nice mainstream movie at the time that it came out. Yeah. I mean, I probably saw it in 2003, and I don't think I've ever gone back, but... I remember liking it. Yeah, and then I saw um, I saw Scanner Darkly. There was one other one that I Okay, saw. that's one of the talky ones. Yeah, I really like Scanner Darkly a ton. 
But, um, well, there was one more. Um, oh, Boyhood. That's it. Okay, that's a talky one. Okay, so you have you have seen a couple. And I did not like Boyhood, so. <laughs> and it's weird that from a mainstream point of view, I mean mainstream critic point of view, Boyhood is probably the one of all his movies that, that sort of garnered the most attention and garnered the most accolades. Mm-hmm. But that is not what I would choose. Um, but it's just weird that that's just kind of how that worked out with the press at large. Yeah, and I saw it solely on the on the experimental aspect of it. I was like, this is a fascinating idea of a way to make a movie. Like, if this works, like that could be super interesting for the future of film. But I didn't feel like it worked at all. So I was like, <laughs> okay. I, I thought it worked, but Boyhood to me is a much lesser version of his standout trilogy of movies. Um, and I'd much rather watch that trilogy than watch Boyhood. That's for sure. But there's other there's other connections. Just like how we just said how Plow sort of flows into this movie. Um, I'm not trying to spoil other Linklater movies you haven't seen, but he has one called um, um, Everybody Wants Some that came out about five mm-hmm. years ago. And everyone took that as the unofficial sequel to Days of Confused. And if you've seen yeah. both, it's easy to draw the link. Um, but when I was listening to some of his features on Everybody Wants Them, he really talks about it. He's like, yeah, there is that. But in his mind, Everybody Wants Them is actually more a continuation or sequel of Boyhood. And 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 that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, because even though it's in a completely different time, uh, set in a different time, and it's not the same character, but the protagonist at the beginning of everybody wants some he's essentially picking up from where the protagonist left off in boyhood so thematically it's like a direct sequel or lineage yeah i wonder if he wasn't uh, a part of the marketing because i definitely remember that movie coming out and i remember them them selling it as a sequel or kind of like a spiritual sequel days and confused and being like oh i never saw days and confused even though i've owned it for years but <laughs> i've still never seen it Oy, oy, I've had the oy. DVD for like seven years and never watched it. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, it's a heck of a leap to go from Plow to this and then Days of Confused, which are his three consecutive movies. Wow. Talk about, you know, it's almost like when you watch the first three films that Kubrick ever made and it's like one is leaps and bounds, like past the next, past the next. Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. I mean, I really like Killer's Kiss, but I know a lot of people kind of shit on it a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, but I'm not even kind of as number one uh, in the. No, order. yeah, Fear and Desire is uh, right. Yeah, that's a weirdo <laughs> flick. And you might even count the. Uh, I don't know if you saw the uh, his very first film thing. It, it wasn't like a dramatic film. It was um, it was basically like an infomercial for the Merchant Marines. Um, oh no i've never even it, heard it of this. shot more it? almost like a documentary or like propaganda back in the day uh it's more in that kind of style but that's his actual first film film that was like something that was projected in the theater um, oh okay hmm. yeah it's it's a special feature on probably killer's kiss probably that same set hmm but it, it's it's fantastic it's very high quality it's just it's just a puff piece for the merchant marines in that particular time period like the early 50s or something oh, cool check that out hmm. yeah it is funny i was thinking about the first films of some other filmmakers and yeah fear and desire looks For a whole sure. lot better after watching uh 
after watching the whatever that last movie's called. The title's too long. That first movie by right. Well, it's also a good title though, apt title after listening to the commentary because he talks about how when he came out with Slacker and it, people because people just assume like the easiest um, path to something. Uh, people thought, oh, he's just this young guy who just came out of nowhere, got his camera, got some friends, shot Slacker, and it's amazing. Like, But he's just like, that is absolutely not the origin of that movie <laughs> or making yeah. of the movie. Uh, in the Plow commentary, he talks about all those short... He talks about how he was basically self-taught for filmmaking. Um, he had a school background of literature and theater, but actual filmmaking was like pretty much all self-taught and he talks about how he did nothing but study filmmaking on his own for and practice it by making shorts for a whole nine years prior to slacker and i was like well that's that's the title of the, of the movie plow you know like you don't learn how to plow it's impossible from just like reading books and it's substitute plow with make a movie yeah that's that's interesting I thought maybe I was missing something with that end of that movie when there's that guy who was talking about the book that has the same title. I thought maybe I was missing some meaning there because I stopped paying attention for like 20 minutes. But <laughs> Now, what I just said, he didn't literally say that, but that was just the obvious conclusion I drew after listening to him speak and then thinking about the title of the movie. That just made all the sense in the world to me. I guess we've kind of been talking around the movie itself, but slacker, so... Yeah, what well, what were your thoughts on your most recent viewing of this movie? Um, I, I, okay, this is just one of those movies that I just love more every time I watch it. It just gets better and better, even though I'm generally familiar with the whole movie, and it's not like, oh, what? I never paid attention to this segment. No, um, it's just it it is so become just like comfort food to me, or not comfort food, but a type of food that you're just you just know you'll always like it even though you may not always eat it every month or even every year but when you do you go oh yeah i always like this thing it's always just right um so i always have that experience anytime i watch this movie um i can start watching it well of course i can just start watching it at any point anytime uh and just go with it but that's obvious based on the structure which i don't know if everyone's familiar um um, and then, of course, just like anything, you watch it again and you go, oh, I never noticed that little thing. Uh, but nothing earth-shattering or groundbreaking. Just the little things. And the other reason I always like this movie, to, like, to come back to it as like a comfort food thing, like I was saying, is because this movie you know, was all shot, by and large, in the same general area, a certain particular area of Austin, Texas. Um, it was shot in 89. And even though I didn't grow up in Austin, I grew up um, about 75 miles south Austin in San Antonio. But I very much remember just what the world looked like around me, like in the city, in, in those in those years. And this movie, it just captures that look so perfectly. Um, like the architecture and just the way things look like um like uh newspaper coin operated newspaper machines and like just what 
disposable cups look like from restaurants and like the clothing and the cars and the state of disrepair of like older homes. It, everything from start to finish the, of the movie, it, it is like a time machine for me. And like, yeah, that is exactly what everything looked like in my memory. And that is a strong, compelling factor for me to always revisit this movie because it just, it just so exudes Central Texas in 89. Everything, every possible element about it exudes that and it, it's so perfect it's just like a snapshot in time yeah that, that's funny that was gonna be one of my questions for you does this movie feel like a time capsule a thousand million percent <laughs> and even though i was middle school age at the time that this movie was shot i know this is how people of you know the majority of the characters are between like 20 and 30 years old um mm-hmm. and i even though i was younger at the time i that's how they looked to me and that's how they were um, and that's how they dressed. And not that I had listened to many of their conversations at the time, but I could just imagine this is exactly what their conversations might sound like. Yeah, like they're all college students who yeah, are kind of lost in their own brains. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, it feels super 90s. Well, it's funny because because this, this movie is considered like the poster child for, for representing Generation X, circa mm-hmm. 1989. It's interesting because Linklater himself is actually slightly older than Generation X. He was actually the, of the, the tail end of the baby boomer generation. Oh, okay. But despite that, he still perfectly captured the Gen X people of the late 80s. Just, and it, it is. I mean, this is what it is. And this is how they were, I guess. Because, again, I, was, I only have a middle school perspective on this. But, but from, you know, everything else I've read and know... Um, they were just people who didn't really take career a career you know in general didn't take uh um pursuing a career as that big a deal and just kind of hey let's all chillax and in some ways they were like a second coming of like the 60s generation Mm -hmm. and they were just the late 80s early 90s version of that like hey you know it is what it is we're just here just existing yeah kind of rejecting that extreme yes extreme corporatism of the reagan era yes and also it's important to note that even though this all takes place in austin but like i said this this does not represent the entire city of austin this represents this area this particular grouping of people who fit a certain age group or whatever this just represents them uh for the most part so you don't imagine the whole city of austin was like what you see in slacker because that no no that's not accurate. Yeah, and I guess since you're bringing up that specific element, uh, do you know what the mumblecore genre is? Heard of it. I think someone's described it to me a little bit. Yeah, it's a genre that I'm actually not at all a fan of. Um, when I was a teenager, I used to be super into indie, especially kind of 90s indie movies. And although they're not considered part of the mumblecore genre, they're very much uh, like, what's the word, precursors? where they're centered around, you know, mid-20s to, like, 30-somethings. Usually people who are either unemployed or, like, don't really care about careers. And they're low-budget films that are solely focused on, you know, super dialogue-driven and very much not plot-driven. Mm-hmm. This movie very much defines that kind of genre. Right. And this movie is also, based on my research, quote-unquote, this movie, because there was a massive trend of indie movies through the 90s. 
uh, yep. the whole decade. But this movie, along with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, are considered the two like forebears of that whole um, uh, wave that was about to happen. And if you do any research on this movie, you'll you'll stumble across this trivia fact like a hundred times. But this is the movie that apparently inspired um, Kevin Smith mm-hmm. to eventually go on and make Clerks, which makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the reasons why I feel like this movie didn't quite hit for me was because I've seen so many movies that work off this template. Not exactly in terms of the format. I've never seen a movie where almost every kind of new sequence like i've seen a lot of portmanteaus that are really random like this but never that it it covers so many characters like this is just it just constant almost every other scene we're jumping to a new character yeah in more recent movies something that comes to mind that's kind of like that not exactly but um, like birdman if anyone has seen that yeah i haven't seen that one oh well that's like a very nouveau a bit of a take where we're we're you know like behind the camera point of view third person and we're just constantly falling around these different people largely in the same building um but we're just like oh now we're with them and then they talk to so-and-so now we're with them and now we're back with them and it's, oh, it's like continuous like that. oh it is and it's it's also like 1917 i don't know if you've seen that nope oh jeez. <laughs> oh jeez. I know, I was so sad I missed that one in the theater. <laughs> well, you've got a lot to see. Well, Birdman is a bit like 1917 in that um, even though they use camera trickery, um, it's made to be as if it's one continuous shot. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be present, you know, understood in that way. So, you know, Birdman's interesting in that way as well. Oh, yeah, but I was, I was definitely going to point to even Quentin Tarantino. I'm sure Quentin saw this movie. But you can definitely feel the influence. Oh, every everybody did. Any everybody who cared about movies in any facet, whether it was making or writing about them or whatever, everybody saw this. If you were a movie buff in the nineties, mandatory viewing. Yeah, and and yeah, I watched so many movies that were ripped from this, and yeah, I used to love them. I mean, I used to love Kevin Smith, and um, there was this one movie that Denis Villeneuve worked on called Cosmos felt very similar to this except it was in black and white and um even well, something like four rooms kind of f- feels similar to this in its way but yes yes i agree with everything but see all those movies and were you the person i always, I always lament or maybe it's you and sean both who have never seen desperado oh i've seen desperado yeah okay well i feel like it kind of falls into that indie category it too does. Yeah. yeah, so Sean's the one the bastard who's never seen it but it, um i mean of course i agree but all those a lot of those movies, most of the ones you just named right now, um, that I liked then, I mostly still like all of them now. I may not appreciate all those filmmakers and a lot of the things they did in more or post '90s, um, but those original ones that you cited, I generally still enjoy all of them. Interesting. And I wanted to say too, also real quick, um, kind of your initial reaction. Well, it's your first time seeing it. That was very similar to my first reaction. Because, like I said, I was just a budding film lover at the time. And I watched it, and I was like, okay. Because, again, I I read a million articles, like, you gotta see this movie. And I saw it, and I was just like, alright, I mean, this is interesting. But I even then, as a budding movie critic, um, 
I thought it got a bit pretentious at times uh, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I was listening to what they were saying, the dialogue, the first time, and I was like, "It's like, but a lot of this is just mumbo jumbo." Like, like, you know, I, I know people in real life, especially when I was younger, I was in those kind of crowds more where people just like ramble, and like I'll be paying attention to what they're saying, but I know they're just going in circles, like with what they're saying, and and mm-hmm. and, and there's like a lack of logic. So then, I, then I start feeling like, why am I paying attention still? Because this is just all over the place, um, and yeah, I had those. Those were that was my first that was my first hot take on this movie. But I will tell you, as the years have gone by and I've watched it more times, I have far evolved from that original opinion I had on this movie. There's there's more going on than just the circular dialogue and babbling. And when you watch it many many more times, just like a good concerto or a good album you start to realize actually it's not all as random as you think it is um there's actually more like for instance i thought it was pretentious right off the bat the first time i saw it just richard link later talking in the, in the taxi because i was like oh my god am i gonna watch a whole movie of this kind of babbling like the stuff and i get you know it's talking about like you think it's like something's like a dream and then what if I went this path and this could happen and da 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 da? It's like, oh, geez. You know, it feels like something that just any um, armchair um, philosopher could come up with, like in a second. Um, you know, that was my initial take. But then when I listened to it just a little bit earlier today for the umpteenth time, and now knowing about Plow, if you listen to what he's really talking about, half of what he's talking about was basically describing the method and construction of plow and the other half of what he's rambling about is setting up what the whole um structure of this movie is about to be that you're about to watch see that's immensely more interesting now and i never picked up on that until today yeah one of my other notes was going to be um that was actually my favorite scene in the movie unfortunately because it comes so early the taxi yeah the taxi that was your favorite oh dear it's also like a very waking life moment i mean in reference to that movie yeah because i i'd watched a couple little interviews um with richard linklater over this past week and so i'd gotten used to kind of the way that he speaks and kind of his uh as an older man mm-hmm. and so seeing him young there and seeing him delivering that i was like hey he's doing a pretty good job and this is kind of a fun kind of little pretentious but also kind of fun antiquated little scene and yeah, then every other scene, I was like, oh, almost every... It's almost the Kevin Smith problem, where like every character kind of talks like him. And the filmmaking... Like, like people always criticize Quentin Tarantino for all the characters sound the same. But he kind of matches that with brilliant filmmaking. Woody Allen. Woody Allen does the same thing. Yeah. But at least Quentin Tarantino, he can distract you with that with some beautiful images. But this movie, like with Kevin Smith, the filmmaking side of it isn't super impressive so you're always focused on what the characters are saying and when every character sounds the same it just kind of feels like Ugh. well see that's the thing again that's how I've kind of felt the first time I watched it like echoing everything you're saying now but I don't feel as strongly about that like what you're saying now I I, I tend to disagree like, they sound so much more like individuals to me the more I watch the movie it's interesting hmm. yeah and I'm, I'm curious to see how that evolves over Linklater's career because I don't remember feeling that in the other movies that I've seen by him. So I feel like maybe that's just an issue with... Maybe it could be the way he's direct, directing the performances. 
because a lot of them feel like they're delivering their dialogue in a similar way as well. So, and I always thought, well, I don't know what I thought, but a lot of this movie was scripted by him ahead of time, and so the actors are actually, you know, reading his words or performing his words. But there's certain individuals in the movie that are definitely not on a script and mm-hmm. are speaking from their own mind or conjuring up from their own mind. And it's hard to know. Like, if you had to go through the whole movie and try to guess, like, how much of this is Linklater's script and how much of it is the person, you know, <laughs> there on the spot, it's kind of hard to tell, I would say, um, which is which. That'd be a fun experiment. I feel like you can definitely tell the ones that had really specifically written lines though like um there's that one conspiracy theorist i feel like his whole bit was very much written which which conspiracy theorist are you talking about oh yeah there's a couple of them um well the first one that we see um you talking about the guy with the batman shirt yeah and he's like carrying the glass from the coffee shop and i was like hey you shouldn't be bringing that You're supposed to leave that okay <laughs> so that guy first of all he just the way his face looks he reminds me of carl from sci-fi party line if carl was like a different race. Oh, <laughs> I can kind of see that. Yeah, shave off the uh, the facial so, hair. I've always thought that since I've known Carl. <laughs> and the other thing is that T-shirt that he's wearing. That's I remember that exact T-shirt because it was one of the more popular, probably officially licensed Warner Brother ones that came out post Batman '89. And so that was a very specific T-shirt that you saw in real life all the time at that time so i there was probably when i was like i said i was in middle school when this came out or when it was made um there was probably seven kids in my middle school who had that exact t-shirt you know so like that's another thing about that but no but that guy according to link later um he always talked about those kinds of things on a regular basis as himself so link later just basically told him hey just do one of your jags that you do and 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 that's what we're gonna go with um oh that's interesting Hmm. so he was one of the guys who like that's who he is in real life so it's like hey just do your thing that's his thing (laughs) yeah that's funny i i I was starting to wonder if like oh maybe link later has like a thing with conspiracy theories because i remember in uh the scanner darkly there's a character is super conspiracy kind of uh what's the word (laughs) i don't know what how to how to say it politely but (laughs) or like just kind of because uh... <laughs> I'm watching the movie as we speak uh, I'm at the part where the guy goes into the little sort of like a diner and the lady is just repeating over and over again oh, yeah you should never never traumatize a woman I should know I'm a medical doctor that woman apparently she, in real life she actually worked in the medical field so you know that kind of throws you off <laughs> Yeah, that scene itself threw me off. That was one of the moments where I'm like, uh, like, what, what's what's this one supposed to be here for? Like, is this just, is this comic? And I, and I think she, she got that, like, what her character is saying from, like, her work experience and, like, knowing people uh, like that. And so she's kind of drawing from her work experience and putting it into that character. That's actually another uh, bit from my notes here. Is this movie a comedy? Is it meant to be funny? Is it meant to be insightful? What is the intent here? So, what do you think? Cause I, by the end of it, I was not sure at all what what the intent was. I I, I wouldn't call it a comedy, um, 
and what was the second thing you said just now? Is it insightful? I think it has moments like that, but I wouldn't describe the whole movie or the gestalt of the movie as the insightful. And the first thing that comes to my mind is going to sound like such a cop-out, <laughs> but it's Slice of Life. Yeah, I was going to say Quentin Tarantino. Or slices of Life. Quentin Tarantino occasionally will talk about how some of his movies he designed to be just hangout movies where you don't have to watch every scene. It's not meant to be super duper plot driven. It's meant to just be you like these characters. You like this sequence of events. So you yeah. sit down, you know, you watch it every now and again. You enjoy it. But it's it's kind of a so more laid back. kind of. I'm going to crudely paraphrase Roger Ebert's thoughts on this movie, which was he said something to the effect of. This movie is made up of the bits of when you're watching a good movie or, a, you know, whatever, a, a decent, entertaining movie, and parts, I'm radically changing his words into my own, but, <laughs> um, or not my own, but I'm, I'm putting it through my own filter. Um, he, uh, like when you're enjoying a movie, you like the unique character bits that are kind of sprinkled in between. Like the parts that you remember that are not necessarily pertaining to the plot of the movie you're watching. They're just character moments. And he said this movie is like taking extracting that from like regular movies, just extracting those little character moments and then just pushing them all to smashing them all together, and that's all you're getting. Because he said that you had enough of those little character side trips. I, I, the way I interpret it is like I always liked in Pulp Fiction near the beginning when before they go into the apartment, Jules and Vincent, and before they knock on the door, they kind of step out of scene for a second mm-hmm. and continue their <laughs> side that. conversation, and then they boom go back into character. That's the way I interpret what Ebert was saying. It's those like side moments, but it's just mm-hmm. all side moments. Um, and Ebert described those side moments as like the little desserts that you get in a regular movie, and this is just taking all the desserts and just p- making a dessert platter. Um, and he said. Like, in this one movie, you have enough of those little desserts to populate, like, five years' worth of movie making. Uh, you can just, like, all the little bits, but they're all smashed into one movie. Oh, no, the pap smear scene just happened. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, I thought that character was going to be the lead of this movie because... Of course. Um, yeah, she's always on the cover of things. Yeah, that's, a, that's exactly what I thought with the first time I saw it. And, yeah, that was not a particular scene that I cared for i mean i enjoyed the performance but it's the scene itself (laughs) but that's one of those ones where i felt like she was you know kind of maybe not going off script but improvising in her own way you had such a naturalistic feeling to it that was another one where he said in real life because he knew in real life obviously he knew almost all these people in real life um he said that's who she was she would always have these crazy stories that she would tell (laughs) Um, and, you know, you're just kind of like, okay, like, how much of this is true or not? And he said that the Madonna Passmere story is actually a story she he, she had told before in real life. And so, he, yeah, he told her, hey, could you do the Madonna one? Could you do the Madonna story, like, for the movie? So. Yeah, watching that scene, I was like, this is the kind of person that I used to know when I was a teenager, and I wish I still knew them now, but maybe I don't at the same time, because... <laughs> Those people can be super fun, but also, like, oh, what are you doing with your life, man? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's at least one of those types of characters in, in a lot of these talky 
and sometimes more than one. In a lot of these talky link later link later movies, there's a lineage of someone to <laughs> fill that role, for sure. Yeah, I. I- I, I enjoyed that moment, but at the same time, I was like, "This it feels like it should be more." I, I felt like that way with the whole movie. Like, like I said, the first real sequence is my favorite, and every other one afterwards kind of feels like just half baked for me. But I was gonna ask: Is there any standout kind of? Um, I was gonna say vignettes, but I, I guess it's vignettes. It's so brief, but uh, I should have taken some notes. I mean, to answer a question like that. Um because I can't think of all of them at the same time and then try to, yeah. like, pick out my face. There's a billion of them, so... <laughs> but I'll just say some notable ones that I just remember now in the moment, having seen it recently again. Um, it always strikes me similar to the first time, even though it's my second or fifth or tenth viewing, um, just when the, the college professor comes home with his daughter and the guy is there looking at his historical Mm -hmm. stuff and i remember having the same i remember my initial thought was something to the effect of oh look they just came in they accidentally walked in on a home invasion robbery and then the guy you know super nervous pulls a gun and you already know the first time you watch it oh he's gonna the professor's super chill he's gonna calm the guy down and then of course that's exactly what happens and I, I recreate that same initial experience every time I watch it again. I have the exact same thoughts now as like the first. And, and I'm not saying that I dislike it for that. It's just, it's funny how it triggers the same exact reaction in me, even though I've already seen it how many times. That was my second favorite vignette. And it's solely due to the performance by that professor. Like that's another one that feels really naturalistic, but just he's like a... He's the kind of guy that you just want to hear stories from. Absolutely. He's got a really charming way of speaking and carrying on a conversation. Yeah, and he actually was a retired uh, philosophy professor from UT Austin. Ah, okay. Yeah, that, that'd be a good professor. I mean, he seems like he'd uh, tell a good class. And I, 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 I kind of like the joke at the end <laughs> that that guy who was breaking into his house has like a first edition Marquis de Sade. And oh, the other criminals are like, we don't know what that is. Like, what the fuck is this? This is nothing. You should have grabbed a TV. Like, I love that. I, I I enjoyed the uh, kind of irony of that. But absolutely, yeah. The, there's there's not a lot of other standout sequences for me. Again, just notable for me watching it now. So when the friends are kind of hanging out that place and they're talking about, we'll put you on the uh, the guest list and come by, and then you know they eventually go check it out and they're not on the list. And but anyway. Just that group of people that we follow for that time. Somehow, that just reminds me of hanging out with random friends, like mm-hmm. in my 20s. Even though I was. Oh, now, of course, I've been to Austin uh, many times in my adult life. Uh, and it's, it's not like I, I ran in these circles that we see in the movie, but I definitely ran around tangentially to these circles and in these same areas. Um, and it just somehow reminds you of just hanging out at a random eatery in Austin, and and there's nothing special or notable that that sticks out in this like oh because this is so Austin or no it's not no I mean it could be any city anywhere if you're just in that particular type of neighborhood, but there's just something about it that just feels so familiar, and it just captures it perfectly. I, this is such a lame. I feel like I'm giving it the most. 
No, I, I, I it's like saying that. Wizard of Oz is like a fairy tale, and that's what it feels like, and that's what it is. I'm like, okay, genius, thanks for enlightening us. <laughs> but and that's that's honestly, I feel like the best thing you can hope for in this movie is feeling like it recreates experiences that you've had in the past. Because I 100% agree. I've known guys like that who can just talk up a storm, and then once you get down to it, whether they're we're telling the truth or not, they end up coming out seeming like they're full of shit so I mean he, he seemed like an okay guy but at the end of it he kind of screws them over in a way so I'm like oh, I've definitely known guys like that but that scene of those women sitting across you know talking about their boyfriends kind of felt like a scene that was was uh, scripted oh like it felt really well yeah they're like some of the worst actors and actresses in the movie but it's, yeah it felt really that's scary. neither here that's not why you're watching slacker um, that, that's a tour de force performance. But another thing I like about that scene that I reflect on, having lived through the time, uh, the way the girls look, well, the guys too, but the girls look, the way they're dressed, okay, again, I remember that, like, boom, like, that is spot on. But what's interesting about it for me now, looking back, is that if you look at other popular media from the same time frame, the kinds of things you'd see young people wearing or the way they would dress would be more akin to like the first season of Beverly Hills 90210 um, or Saved by the Bell, like the original series. Um, that's the same time period as this. And don't get me wrong, there were definitely people who dressed like that, uh, 90210 and Saved by the Bell. Um, but that was, and that's what you see if you go back to you know mainstream stuff from that time period. But that only represents that group of people or class or whatever at the time. Uh, kids in L.A. who are still stuck in 1988. Right. Um, or any, you know, very, you know, with the times, metropolitan type city uh, of that era. But the way these girls look, that was just as common and just as everywhere in real life. But you don't see it nearly as much uh, in other, you know, popular media. So you'd have to search it out, even though, you know, it's like, obviously neither one of us lived in the 1960s, <laughs> but we've seen plenty of movies or television shows set in that time period, and we have a, a feel for it uh, based on that. And it would be like saying, yeah, because that was real. Woodstock was real. Mad Men was real. That's true. But what if someone told you, but there's this whole other segment of 60s culture and lifestyle in the United States that was totally existing side by side, Woodstock and Mad Men, but you just don't know it because you don't see it in a popular movie or film. And that's what I'm trying to say about mm-hmm. seeing this little slice from the 90s. It was not niche, it was everywhere if you were alive and walking around at the time. But you have to dig deep if you're trying to find it like in a movie or television show of that era. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, this definitely captures a different side of the, the period oh wow <laughs> i'm just watching that scene you were mentioning earlier with uh, the woman kind of harassing that guy in the coffee shop about the uh yes i can't remember what she says don't sex or don't you never traumatize the woman sexually i should know i'm a medical doctor yeah then a guy walks in orders a coffee in his bathrobe but nothing else i didn't realize he was wearing nothing else but the bathrobe like oh man i'm telling you watch this movie 50 more times and you're gonna notice a lot more things for the first time Boy, oh boy, you never see that in coffee shops these days. Not usually. 
Someone get thrown out immediately. Yeah, I feel like the cops would be called in, in, in this day and age, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, I used to, you know, I worked the counter at a hole-in-the-wall Chinese delivery takeout uh, in San Antonio for a while. I mean, quite a while. And one of our regular customers was this um, really older, retired man, probably like uh, early 70s or something, early middle 70s. And you could tell, like, if you looked at his vehicle, like, okay, these guys, you know, retired Air Force or whatever um, back in the day. And he'll come in and he would always say the same kinds of things. He'd always ask the same kind of questions. He would always, he was a regular, but he would always come in like it was his first time ever being in the establishment. And he'd be like, oh, you have sweet and sour chicken? Uh, how, how do you make it? Is it good here? Oh, what, the Mongolian beef. Is, is that good? And he would always go through like, almost like a routine. Every single time he'd go through the whole routine. And then... And then he'd just be making small talk like that. And after he'd been talking for about three or four minutes, going through the menu, he'd go, he, he would like lean into the counter and go, I fucking love hot chicks. I love hot chicks. I love hot chicks. And then he would get back to his script of, uh. <laughs> um, so I should try the Mongolian beef, you think? Oh, okay. Fucking hot chicks. Fucking hot chicks. And, oh, okay. Oh, no. And he would just like slip into those little moments and he would do this all the time. And the other funny thing he would do, okay, he's on the other side of the counter, so you obviously can't see like waist below. But as you're talking to him across the counter, he would be gesticulating sometimes a little bit that it gave you it gave you the impression like he was whacking off on the other side of the counter. I'm not saying he was, but it would seem like it. And that was, like, a little bit unsettling. Um, yeah. Sounds like he had some sort of old uh, war injury that made him a little uh, little off. <laughs> but... And then he would always say, like, I just came in here to... Well, because my wife is shopping, because there's a supermarket across across the parking lot. My wife's shopping, so I just thought I'd just come in here. And like I said, he goes through the whole menu, and then usually he'd be like, oh, okay, well, thank you, and he'd just leave. And he would do this at least once every week. And go through the whole routine every single time. Interesting. So it, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> That's what this movie is. It's taking all those moments of life and and just putting them all together. And and also link later in the commentary, a good 90 percent of this movie is all based upon real life personal anecdotes of his that he experienced. Um, and then there's like the other. 10-15% is based on experiences like his close friends shared with him or whatever that happened to mm -hmm. them. So I can definitely see that. Kind of all these things did happen to some degree um, in actual life. And there's a little disclaimer to that if you go to the very end of the credits. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I didn't stay till... He says yet. everything in this movie is based on fact. Any... Uh, I don't remember... But any, like... Any... Um, like connections or relation to to uh, fictional events or characters is strictly coincidental. Something to that effect. Well, speaking of real life events, I mean, we got to talk about the uh, the Kennedy assassination. Yes. Because uh, I was just talking about that guy in his bathrobe. Yes. I didn't notice in my first viewing when he goes back to uh, talk to his girlfriend, who clearly you know is getting ready to break up with him because he's a very negative element. I didn't realize that. Uh, 
sitting on their window is a book that says Jager Hoover. Like this really unfortunate looking expression on his face, but. No, I, I did not notice that. But there's definitely like, I feel like there's other references to Hoover and Taft um, elsewhere in the movie. Which of course Kennedy did not like Jagger Hoover at all, and there's all those uh, right conspiracy theories about right. his connection to his death. So right, I'm sure that was intentional, the, the book placement and the cover and everything. And then again, um, Linklater talks about how he wouldn't have done that scene if he couldn't have got that particular guy, the one who does all the talking in the bookshop, um, because again, according to Linklater, that guy was that guy uh, in real life. Absolutely, a hundred percent, completely obsessed with the, the whole Kennedy situation, assassination, etc. Um, Interesting. And so mm. that guy was another one playing himself. Well, that, that, that's fun. You know, I mean, you know, amateur director, you get people who know what they're kind of, they're just playing themselves. It's, it's, a, it's a good move. Now there's one, there's at least a couple people who had legitimate acting careers before being in Slacker, and I, which I didn't even know until doing quote-unquote research with me and I, I i don't have his bio in front of me but the guy i guess you'll get to him in about five ten minutes the guy who's in a mostly well a black suit and a dark gray shirt cigarette on his ear and the other guy's filming him with his camcorder well the guy in the dark suit he was a legitimate actor in some legitimate movies and played legitimate parts but i couldn't tell you offhand those are yeah and there's one there's one girl we see for she doesn't have i don't think any lines she just walks into a coffee shop then we kind of switch perspective but i thought she was super attractive so i noticed her and looked her up to be like hey is she anything else because she's kind of hot and i saw that she was a local actor in uh in austin so i was like oh okay or, or maybe it's dallas oh well just like um pap smear girl earlier i had no idea that she was the drummer in the the butthole surfers which is not necessarily a household name of bands but it's it's definitely the name of a band i knew in the 90s yeah i don't know um so yeah 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 almost everyone in this movie was a real life friend of link later an ex-roommate of link later and apparently he has hundreds of ex-roommates <laughs> um i mean i've heard from commentaries on some of his other movies as well he, same thing um Let's see, what else is there? Oh, and then a lot of local awesome mu musicians. Um, and then, like, yeah, people, because he was part of, like, a little film club that he helped start in, at UT Austin. And so perhaps that girl you just spoke of or some others, uh, they were part of that troupe as well. The like It's like the Austin, like, Film, film Lover Society or whatever it was called. Yeah, uh, but... Just just because you were saying there was some deeper meaning, um, did did you want to kind of express what you mean by that? Because again, I, I felt like this movie more existed as kind of a, you know, I want to do another film, I want to do another feature, but I don't really have a script. I just kind of want to do kind of a slice of life type movie. Well, he did have a script. <laughs> Apparently, he labored for ages for to like. Put this script on paper before he actually set out to uh, shoot it. Oh, interesting. I, I thought maybe more this was like, um, I'll film a sequence and I'll write the script for my next one and just kind of going along. No, 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 no. He specifically, he and he says, that's what people think about this movie. But he was like, no, he was like locked up for months writing the script all out and everything before he ever 
you know, got others involved and actually started producing the movie. Another thought, because I saw it on screen, I must have been watching this movie again uh, in either 2016 or 2012, um, because whenever it was, I was rewatching it. It was during a presidential election year here in the U.S., and mm. and Ron Paul was like in the early rounds running for president. He, he didn't get very far. Oh, sounds like 2012. Okay. And then I, I was I was put on Slacker for whatever reason at the time, and just before the philosophy professor gets home and walks into his home, uh, he's walking across the parking lot with his daughter. And in the background, there's a truck that has the Ron Paul for president, 1988. And so I remember <laughs> seeing this like in 2012, and I was like, one of those like spit out your coffee moments, like, oh my god, this guy's been running for president. At least 88? Good lord. So that really jumped out at yeah, me. Yeah, what a failure. <laughs> Tried over and over again, never succeeded. Right. Well, right. What can you do? <laughs> and they were talking about George Bush in this one, and I was like, oh boy, that's that's real out of date. And of course it was J- George H.W. Bush, so real, real out of date. But <laughs> yeah. that yeah. sets it in its period, you know. Well, it's not that out of date for George Bush. Well, H.W., I mean, they didn't say that part, but I mean, you can just assume... But, well, it has to be him, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, he was president at the time. Uh, yeah. So it fits. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, okay. What I was alluding to when I said that, I don't have specifics to pull out of a hat. But what I meant was, it's not all just aimless rambling throughout the whole movie. Just like what I said earlier about how there's actually more to his words in his opening monologue in the taxi... Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it, everything's that profound, but many, many if not most of these vignettes are rooted in some type of deliberate thought process, you know, that he had set in his mind when he put it on paper, not just aimless rambling. Like there was a point, or he was trying to make a point with this, or when this character fixated on that, in Linklater's mind, that's like tapping into like a broader thing. Um, another thing I think about watching it now is a lot of the subjects that the different vignettes get into, the different speakers. Um, like, there's a lot of stuff about the environment and global warming. There's a lot of stuff about um, politics and bad politicians and bad policy. There's a lot of talk about don't believe the mainstream media. Um, there's talk, well, especially with the philosopher, about what's considered like the first um, mass uh, killing, mass shooting of modern American history. But all these different things in 89, it's all the same old shit that everyone's still talking about. Always. And, and same thing 20 years before this movie and 20 years before that and 20 years before that. I need to memorize it. Um, uh, I need to memorize it uh, by verbatim, but it's always been one of my um, favorite Bible quotes that I butcher, which is the one about um, it's the same thing under the sun. Like, what's been, what has come, it's all the same. Uh, it's one of the parts in the Bible that sticks out to me the most. And it's one of the most true things you could say about the world and humans and, and culture. It's one of the most true things you could possibly say or think about, but yet anybody who lives in the present, any present, 
whether it was a thousand years ago or a thousand years in the future, anyone who lives in the present always seems so blind to that very obvious truth, universal truth. Uh, no matter what time you live in, in history, everyone always thinks their time is the most unique time. Everybody always thinks that things are happening for the first time in their time. And that is one of the biggest fallacies ever. And I feel like it's all over the place in 90s media. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> like, maybe they put more of a focus on it back then. That's one of the reasons I look back at 90s media and, and feel like it's so antiquated. Like, they feel like they're so profound. <laughs> well, again, because this was the, the next coming of, of the indie film. Not the first time, obviously. Uh, and I liken it back to, because, you know, not too long ago, I went to the BBS uh, Criterion set, and that's chronicling the same thing that was happening in the late 60s, early 70s in film. The exact same kind of thing, this whole indie movement. And that's why I kind of like that. Uh, I said it at the time, why I like that set, because I felt like, oh, this is like a weird link later thing box set but it's from the late 60s early 70s but when a lot of those characters start rambling in those movies it's it's so link later ish um and like what you're just saying like how you said like a bunch of 90s indie films that's exactly the vibe you get when you watch a bunch of those indie movies of that time period it's like wow okay we get it like this is the seventh movie i've watched from this time period <laughs> And they're just like hammering home the same thing. But I don't know. There's something okay with that as far as I'm concerned. No, that that's fair. I mean, it could just be that this is like the, I don't even know, like the 17th movie or probably more that I've seen from the 90s that kind of is, is probably emulating this movie, to be honest. And so it just feels kind of more antiquated in the sense that it's just, I've seen the ripoffs a million times over. So... <laughs> I'm not just saying. I I completely get what you're saying, but but there's still something I like about it. Whether it's this or the previous era, or ugh, I don't know the indie scene in general. It's not the same as this. I'm talking about current day. It's not the same as this, but it falls its, into its same traps of Jesus. Every indie film have to like take what seems like a similar angle on this particular issue of now and ugh, like I get, it bothers me more in the, in the current crop of uh, indie movies I can't take the current crop I mean Mumblecore that, that's I don't know if it came across when I said it originally but I've got a lot of disdain for, for Mumblecore I think it's full of just pretentious college kids who think they're super insightful and that really they're just repeating the same things people have been saying for decades right 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 and like i said i think this movie comes off as that initially um but like i said uh link later is the puppet master behind the scenes that you don't see who's actually <laughs> pulling the strings from most of the dialogue or the direction that that conversations go um and like again of course you listen to the commentary and you realize oh yeah this guy put a lot of thought into this it's not actually mumblecore if it even if it comes across as that yeah i definitely didn't get that impression watching it <laughs> to the only thing that kept me holding on was i was like i know he can do really good work because a scanner darkly is i would consider a great film i mean 
I love, love that film. So I was like, there's got to be more going on behind the scenes than what I'm seeing on the screen, but it's hard to connect. That's why I thought maybe this was more like an experiment rather than a real film. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, for take it as it is, but any I've seen all his talking movies, except actually that one I've only seen pieces of it. I've never seen it start to finish, Scanner Darkly. But all the others, I believe I've seen at least once all the way through, if not multiple times. And I'm just one of those people that there's not a single one of his talking movies that I don't like. Now, I like them to different degrees, that's for sure. Um, but I'm all in. So, I have an extremely biased opinion. Um, oh, it's funny. Uh, I'm on the scene where the guy who's obsessed with all his television screens. Oh, God. <laughs> and there's, there's, you know, there's all these different clips that are just randomly playing on loop on his different screens. And there's this one that looks like a violent sex scene with some yeah, Asian it's like characters. A porn film. Right. I didn't know I, and I didn't think too much of it, but then Link later, you know, directly spoke about it in the commentary. And I had no idea that um it's part of the Criterion collection. So literally after he said that and said a little bit about the movie, the original movie, um, I actually I actually ordered the, the Criterion uh movie even though it is streaming right now on the channel as well oh, i still i just bought it based on what he said about it it sounded super interesting to me oh which movie um in the realm of the senses from oh, really from 1976 i believe obviously japanese oh one. yeah I, I know that film i wanted to see it for a long time actually see see, <laughs> see how that works see how oh. that works this this is super random did you ever see the film Drawing Flies? No, I don't believe so. Yeah, it was starring... Um, oh, fuck. What's that guy's name? Jason something. I think it was Jason. He was the guy who was in Mallrats. Um, he played like... Uh, he was like the main lead in that. I can picture the person. What's the name of the movie again that you just named? Drawing Flies. Yeah, it was another one of these indie movies from the 90s that I watched. And for whatever reason, I don't even know what because I haven't seen it in like a decade. Watching this movie just kept making me think of that film. I don't know if it's the feeling of it or, or what. And I keep looking at the disc because I own it on disc and I've just not really gone back to it. I'm kind of curious to rewatch it. Oh, that's Jason Lee? Jason Lee, that's it. That's right. I didn't even realize that was Jason Lee in, in those other Kevin Smith movies. I mean, can I recognize it? I recognize him as two different people. I recognize him as, as he appeared in the 90s. And then... The um, oh, that's funny. and then I recognize him My as name this, is Earl. yes, and I I recognize those <laughs> as two separate people. Oh, geez, that's so ridiculous. Yeah, and I, I don't know. This this movie just feels like such a piece for those '90s indie movies that I've kind of turned on. So. I feel bad for it. I just found it at the wrong point in my life. I think. Well, see, what I hear you saying is like, obviously things that are like the uh, the hard boiled little heist gangster flicks of the 90s the indie ones uh everything that was basically copying tarantino oh boy uh, and, and oliver stone i mean tarantino and oliver stone and then everybody was copying them for the rest of the decade there was so many of these straight to video knockoffs and things like that i always assume straight to killing zoe did you ever see that yeah one? killing zoe that's one of the probably oh. the best known of of these copycat type movies um well every time i 
randomly rent one, and I'd, you know, like, oh, it's another one of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get that feeling. But what I, I hear you saying about this movie in regards to that would be like if you were familiar with a lot of these hardball gangster movies uh, from the 90s, and then you watched uh, Reservoir Dogs or True Romance for the very first time after having seen a bunch of other stuff and looking at Reservoir Dogs and go, oh, geez, this is so not Tarantino at his best. Like, oh, wow. Wow, this guy had so much more after, but God, he wasn't really the genius, was he, with Reservoir Dogs? Which I would strongly disagree with that opinion. If that's the opinion you had, but that's that's kind of how I feel now, uh, listening to you talk about. It. Which I mean, everything you're saying is perfectly fair and valid. Again, I had the same exact reaction the first time I saw it, but I have come a long way. See, I I, I disagree because the filmmaking in Reservoir Dogs is still super strong. I mean, I saw that very late in my Tarantino education. You're right. It's not a perfect metaphor in any way. You have to stretch your imagination to make it work. And you're absolutely right. There's a lot of talented filmmaking on the screen right off the bat. 100% agree. Yeah, that's that's why I said early on that the reason Tarantino gets away with kind of uh, all his characters feeling the same and some of the writing maybe feeling a little not quite polished enough is he was such a great driver for a filmmaker. It just carries the whole thing. This movie certainly lacks in actual filmmaking technique. Um, that's inarguable. But everything else it has besides that, I think 100% stands the test of the time. And circling back to the low-level professionalism of film technique, that I don't think is necessarily a detriment to this movie. Um, it probably enhances the experience as far as I'm concerned. Actually, that reminds me of something because that kind of bothers me on the flip side, uh, which is, so everybody wants some. Like I said, it came out approximately five years ago. And I remember hearing about it and I remember anticipating it and like, oh, I really want to see this movie so badly because I love everything Linklater. Um, And of course, I absolutely adore uh, um, Days and Confused. Um, It's funny because I love that movie. I love this movie. But yet... They're so different and same and a little bit similar, but so different. Anyway, um, and so I was really anticipating it, and don't and I tried to watch it at the movies because, of course, it was only showing like at art house theaters and stuff like that. It wasn't mainstream. I didn't get to catch it at the actual theater. I sat on it for years, um, and then I watched it for the first time like two months ago, finally, and. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what I was afraid of, because I really liked it. But, as much as I like that movie, there's one thing that bothers me so much about it that kind of ruins it, even though I still like it. And that is, it is so perfectly shot! And the screen quality, I mean, not screen quality, the picture quality is fucking perfect, as perfect as digital 4k could possibly look Mm. and the fact that that movie is supposed to be taking place in like 81 or 80 or whatever it is 
that fucks up the whole movie for me. Yeah, I know that exact <laughs> because it's problem. it's <laughs> so fucking perfect. It's so fucking perfect. And the camera always moves perfectly. And it's always, like, framed perfectly. And it just ruins the whole aesthetic of it being a period piece and supposed to be depicting this certain, again, this certain type of niche grouping in a certain geographical location. It kills it. And I would do anything for that same exact movie from five years ago to have been shot on real film, to mm-hmm. at least be shot like the way Hateful Eight uh, was, um, which is, again, it's shot on real film, and, and at times you can tell. Um, well, especially if you watched like the Roadshow on actual film. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't need to look like Grindhouse. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't need to look aged or like jittery or no, 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 no. Just little subtle, what you get with real film, and it would have helped if it was just maybe a little bit off sometimes with the cinematography. So to me. Uh, everybody wants some is like the direct antithesis of what you're saying about this movie because i actually think this works in this movie's favor the very homespun like production values works for this movie and the amazing production values of of his one of his more uh almost his latest film it just works in the whole opposite direction for me yeah that's one of the reasons i appreciate Robert Eggers so much. Oh yeah. When he made the lighthouse, he was like, I want a specific look and I'm gonna do whatever I can to recreate it. I wish more filmmakers had that kind of uh I was gonna say care, but I'm I'm sure I'm sure Linklater cared about making that movie. Well that's just... that's oh, it confounds me, but I guess I guess he's more about the characters, the acting, the the character moments, the beats of the script and the dialogue and the content of the dialogue. I guess he just cares about that so when someone's like all right we're gonna use uh red eye cameras like the latest shit because it's it's easily available and inexpensive in current day yeah okay whatever but no it like it ruins the movie to me yeah it could be budget too and it's so weird to me because because well yeah like i said it's actually weirdly more inexpensive more inexpensive but less expensive to just use like your iPhone shooting in 8K you know but it, it ugh cause this this movie would be bizarre if it was all the same people and all the same um, wardrobe and everything but it was shot with like 2020 cameras hmm. it would be bizarre it, it would almost be like watching um, the Hobbit trilogy in 60 frames per second like it's hyper realistic that it looks like a, a daytime soap opera shot in HD. Yeah, that's a nightmare in the theater. But I was going to say that that's what uh, differentiates this from a actual uh, mumblecore movie. Is one of the defining characteristics is shot on uh, digital. So that's why this is just a precursor rather than an actual one, even though it feels identical to them. Yeah, and, and I've, I've seen I've seen a few um, modern indie movies that some I got kind of liked. But the pure digital feel, like, took me out of it. Especially in, like, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't watch them often, but I, I, I watch friends watching them. Like, uh, mm-hmm. modern, very low-budget horror movies. But mainstream mm-hmm. ones. Uh, and because they have that hyper-clarity, but they're low-budget films, 
it it really really distracts me. Yeah, it it gives a complete different vibe. It's it's damn. Because again, imagine if Evil Dead Two, which is a classic horror movie I do like, imagine that movie, everything being exactly the same, but again, it's shot like a modern or it's shot like The Hobbit in sixty frames per second, and just think how kitschy and strange everything would look like in high definition. If 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 it yeah, was all it's... the exact same effects and everything. It's such a shame. I wish we would go back to... I I know they can't help it because it's so cheap, but it just damages the, the credibility of the effects for a lot of those like, kind of movies. Evil Dead 2 would look like a dumb, amateurish YouTube video if it was shot pristinely with mm-hmm. modern technology. Yeah, the, you could tell that the blood doesn't sit right on like the whatever kind of material they're using for the practical effects. Like mm-hmm. I can see that all the time, and it's just yeah, uh, it bothers would... the hell out of me. But yeah, you need a certain amount of natural grit in the, in the film stock or whatever, and that's why I think um, something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of the greatest 4K discs you can buy now because it is pristine, but it's shot on film at the same time, largely throughout the whole entire movie, and oh, that that's a match made in heaven. Um, <laughs> real film, modern day, matched with 4K technology. Mm-mm-mm. It does not get better than that in the eye candy department. Well, but there was one more thing I wanted to say about this movie. I'm not sure if I have a a ton more to say necessarily. But there's that whole end sequence um, where we cut to this group of friends driving around in their car. And they're filming each other. And it's just, it feels like a slice of life, but also feels like it's different than the whole rest of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And then at the end, they just throw the camera and it goes spinning off. And then it just, the movie just ends. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the moment where I thought, oh, you know, throughout this movie, I wondered, like, maybe he's trying to say something deeper about, like, the meaning of life and stuff. But that moment, I felt like, was the signifier that, oh, this is more just an experiment in making a film rather than trying to say something. There's a, there's a few things he said about that. First of all... I can't remember the original movie, but there's some classic um, film studies movie, foreign, I believe, that that whole sequence is inspired by that movie, because oh okay, I, I can't remember the name of it, but it was some movie that he loved from his film studies days, um, which w- and in the movie there's this scene where the young people just go off on a little excursion, and it's somewhere in Europe, and they all just like hike up this mountain just to get to the top and it's shot in some kind of way and that was his like direct homage to that scene in that movie but beyond that um for a movie that if you actually go back and pay attention there's very few cuts in the film uh mm-hmm. they're very sparing in t- by by design by link later but the vast majority of all the movie's cuts all happen in that little sequence at the end. <laughs> um, and yeah, he, he liked the idea of different people in a group having their own camera um, and you know just jumping around from every different person's point of view. But also, the scene represented um, virtually the entire movie prior to that all takes place in this certain specific part of Austin that that is like I don't know eight city blocks, you know, in in area, um, almost all the movie takes place in that, in that section, and this is the one time where 
we follow some characters who just leave that behind. Um, and I know where they're at. I, I know where all these places are, like in real life. But I mean, <laughs> so these kids are just randomly going off just to, you know, do what kids do, you know? Uh, just go a little bit out of town and whatever. And it's just, it's it's not just an escape for them. It's an escape from the setting of where we've been for the whole movie. And it's just breaking out of there. Um, and then, yes, he, he tried to instill some quality of just like time in the world. It doesn't just start and stop with you. It, it'll just continue. And even when you're gone, it'll just continue with somebody else. Like as long as humans are still a living race or species, it'll always just oh, keep boy. going. <laughs> what? Uh, I definitely didn't get that from that scene, but... <laughs> well, that's the thing. These, throughout these vignettes, and you, oh, he'll admit, there's one or two or three that, yeah, are just throwaway nonsense. But mm. but that's just like one or two or three. Um, um, that's the thing about this movie. It's, de- it's deceptively simplistic on so many levels. Um... And so much more of it is by design than you really think. Um, and yeah, I get it. You have to have the director hold your hand and, and walk you through it. Yeah. I get it. But I was going to say, do you think you'd feel that way if you had you not listened to the commentary? Well, well, wait. Well, I know how I felt before the commentary, which is I already love this movie. But I love this movie, again, it's like comfort food. It's like having a sweater that you always enjoyed and always felt comfortable and seems to get more comfortable with more age. But there's nothing particularly special about the sweater. It's not design or anything. Um, it's just, it is what it is, what you expect it to be. Um, and then, like, somehow ages like wine in your mind. So that movie was already that to me. Um, and I, I guess I had my own little personal relationship of, you know, I watch it and it reminds me of different things, you know, from my own life, from my own past, which may have nothing to do with the movie. It just um, sparks me having the memory. So I already loved it in that way. But then just listen to him break it down, that just gives me a whole new level of appreciation. Um, there's actually three commentaries on the disc. Um, one's with just him by himself, one's with random cast members, and the other is with like two or three of the principal crew behind the, behind the scenes, behind the camera. Um, and I listened to a little bit of the crew's um, commentary, and... And, you know, like I said, you talk about, like, the amateurness of much of the, 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 the camera work, etc., production values. It's, it's pretty amazing just to hear them talk about what they were able to accomplish with so little. And to hear them explain, like, um, even though the camera's view's changing here, we actually shot all of this in one take, like, on three cameras, and we're actually cutting the same take like live in real time and you know you might think we reshot this part but nope this was done in real time and it's actually there's a lot of blood sweat and tears that went into this with people who were professionally minded you know what i mean yeah and and i'll just say i do really think there's a great quality of just flowing camera work like there's nothing super fancy like you wouldn't notice it but it is quality in terms of how kind of I don't want to say lyrical because that sounds a little overly fancy for it, but it's just got such a great flow to it that it keeps you engaged even if the 
things you're seeing on screen aren't necessarily super engaging. Yeah, and so, and you know, a lot of it, of course, or not, of course, you know, was shot without film per- permits. You know, they're just running out there, like multiple maniacs. If you listen to the commentary on that, they're just <laughs> running out there, shooting by the seat of their pants, trying not to get arrested. However, they did encounter cops, and the cops were just like, "Yeah, whatever." Like they didn't care, <laughs> like what they were doing. Yeah. I've, I've, I feel like a couple times in this movie, you can see people in the background looking like, what's going on over yes, there? Yes, exactly. I, I kind of like those moments when there's actual real people who don't realize the movie is happening. I like that stuff. And then, like mm-hmm. I said, listening to the crew speak, like, you got, like, they literally would just, not literally, but figuratively just strap a camera onto, like, the hood of the taxi. And, like, that's how they shot that scene. And I'm just, like, picturing this taxi driving through Austin with this camera just, like, you know, like not professionally but just like rigged like you know onto the hood i'm just like picturing it driving around the town like that and there's another notable bit of i don't know almost like what you were just saying about the 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 climbing the cliff scene like is it just done for for no real purpose other than just to do it um when they go to where the band is supposed to be performing uh in that venue i we talked about earlier um now, I always knew there was the part that looked weird in the movie. Like, it almost looks like night vision or something. But I never yes. gave it much thought. Yeah. Do you know what that was? <laughs> no, I don't. I never knew until I researched for this. this guy. Um, there was, like, uh, a, a Fisher-Price, like, children's camera, video recorder camera that that you could get at Toys R Us back in 88, <laughs> 89. Um, oh, I forgot the name of it. It's like, uh, it's like the Pixel Pro or Pixel... Pixel 2 or whatever it was called made by Fisher Price. The the kids version of like a 16mm camera or something? Yeah, almost. But it was, when it first came out, it retailed for 400 bucks, which which would, or nearly 400 bucks, which would be a lot more in 2020 money. Um, And what was cool about it, like it just ran like on 8 AA batteries, but you could use regular audio cassette tapes. And it recorded oh, wow. the images onto audio cassette tapes. Wow, that's that's amazing. Hmm. And it recorded the sound and the audio onto audio cassette tapes. And um, obviously, that's what he used just to film that those weird looking, um, like green monotone looking scenes. And he actually unintentionally started a little movement because. It was the first time anybody had ever done that in a motion picture, used that that toy camera. And apparently he, he started like a little underground scene of of like little niche like homespun filmmakers who like kinda like were into that. Like there was there used to be like a very small regional film festival where everything that was submitted was just done on that pixel camera. Wow, I, I wish they would, would have mentioned that in the movie. That would have really hyped that. <laughs> I never had thoughts about it ever in, in, until I heard it in the commentary. And I was like, holy shit. And I was doing a dive on Wikipedia on that camera and doing a dive on other children's cameras that were developed back in the day. What's funny is I, I wondered what kind of camera he was using. Because I was like, oh, I know people that do this at clubs, you know, back with like the shitty like Sony like standard definition cameras and like wonder what he was using then it wasn't like a vhs camera or something but mm-hmm. interesting i wish they would have mentioned that i would have made it so much more interesting <laughs> well that's what happens when you listen to the commentary especially yeah. of a movie that's better than, because a lot of these schlocky movies 
that you know you've sort of referenced indirectly. If there was to be a, an actual commentary on that, it'd, it'd probably be something to the effect of, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. I don't even remember doing that part. I was actually sick that day, so my friend filmed that scene. You know, that's how I feel like a lot of those commentaries would go for some of those shitty movies from the 90s or whatever. But yeah, it makes me think of... Um, have you? Did you know... Because you said that you like Red Letter Media. Have you ever seen any of their movies? No. That they made? I don't know anything about their movies. Yeah, they made this one called Gorilla Interrupted. I think they made it in like maybe 2000 or 2001. And it also reminds me of this movie where it's, you know, kind of fueled on dialogue in a way. But they have a fascinating commentary where they talk about like, oh, yeah, like, I don't remember doing this. I was sick this day. Like this, we barely managed to do this. And their commentary is almost better than the movie in, in a way. But yeah, it's so, some of these kind of DUI filmmaking things. It's more interesting to figure out how oh, they did it. And I was just thinking about how you took a dump on It's Impossible to Plow. And... Mm-hmm how Link later talks about how it took him like an entire year to amass all those clips that he used. Um, he amassed a total of like 10 hours of footage. And then, Jeez. and then, Jeez. so to, to put it together into a movie movie, to edit it, etc. First of all, he took all his film reels, Super 8, he copied them all to, to video Oh my all God. 10 hours and then he needed a place to cut and edit it the video so uh whatever town he was in at the time you know the public i don't even do you know what like public access television was or i, oh, yeah. I guess it still exists in some places so anyway there was like a local public ac- access station and you could check out their edit studio um to work on projects like for free that you would eventually mm-hmm. air like on the public access channel and he would check it out like he said like every day because he had a he had a, like a part-time job as like a bellhop or something yeah. like that not a bellhop but something low level like in a hotel and uh and he only had like four hour two hours in the evening because he worked at night and did whatever in the day, and so he would check out that little editing studio from like, let's just say nine to eleven. And he said he did it every single night for like a year, um, and, and eventually they started asking him like, "Dude, you're like here every day, and you've never uh, shown anything on public access." They're like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> like, uh, and oh, that's cool. So he did that for like two hours a night for a whole damn year. And put the movie together, and then Caleb just comes along in 2020 and takes a dump on it. <laughs> it's, it's it's a student project, you know. It's it's an exercise in making movies. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. But it but I mean, this guy put his heart and soul into both of these films, like I'll tell 100 you, million percent. I've got so many short stories that I could never bear to try to publish, that I wrote solely as exercises in writing. Like, I never wrote them to publish. They were solely just, okay, I want to try to do this thing. Let me just write this short story just to try to practice at it. Exactly. That's exactly what Linklater says about himself. Yeah, and I, I've seen so many student projects from directors at this point that I kind of want to stop watching them, <laughs> especially those two David Cronenberg ones, Stereo and Crimes of the Future. I watch them, I'm like, I can see elements of Cronenberg. Like, I can see his personality in these movies. 
but they're just so amateurish and unengaging it's like miserable to sit through like i appreciate them to some extent but i wish i hadn't watched them another extent what's that movie that was like the precursor to alien no dark uh dark star is that it Star, that's it. Yes, that's a lot of fun. Actually, well, see, you know, I've always loved Alien since forever, and I always heard about Dark Star. And after trying to see it for fifteen years, I finally saw a little bit of it. Like I don't know, three years ago or something. And I was like, "Holy shit, this is not what I was expecting." <laughs> I'm not saying it's worth it. I mean, it is what it is. But I mean, I just thought, I thought it would much more closely resemble. I mean, not, it wouldn't be Alien. It wouldn't be Alien 1.0, but I just thought it would be more in the vein, like production value-wise or mm. visually or tonally. Yeah, that's that's understandable. So it's not. That was interesting because I was not expecting that. But um, yeah, it's it's funny because I know Dan O'Bannon more from Return of the Living Dead. So seeing his Alien sequence oh. sequence in Dark Star really fit his kind of comic sensibilities for me. So I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> that. Um, because uh, he was saying, because as much as um, Caleb wants to dump on this movie, um, Linklater, no, Linklater uh, mentions how, I mean, this is not what he was trying to do, but he said, you know, just like, like bullets sort of put San Francisco on the map. Um, mm. And he said, you know, Night of Living Dead put Pittsburgh on the map. Slacker did it for Austin. And, and nobody would expect that. And I, at some point in my reading or listening, you know, it talks about this. It's not like this was the first Austin movie or first Austin independent movie. There was plenty of others that preceded Slacker. It's just Slacker just struck this particular chord at the right moment, right time. And it just, it just, it's legendary. Um, despite anything we say or don't say right now, this movie hit legendary status. Like, before the year 2000 and that's never really changed that doesn't mean everybody loves it i'm not saying that but i mean it is legendary status and i'll i'll tell you had i seen this 15 years ago i would have loved it it would have been right up my alley at the time yeah but just because i i mean i meant to see it all that time i was really into the 90s independent scene i saw these super obscure movies this one just somehow slipped past me i knew it existed i just never saw it but had I seen it in that kind of heyday, I, I would have loved it. I just seeing it now, it just feels a little, a little antiquated and a little bit like I've seen all the imitations, and this movie doesn't surpass them. It just kind of exists within them for me. So that's that's just kind of how I feel. What you're saying right now reminds me of what many people who I've said, you know, you should try The Shining. Who have never seen it, people who are like in their twenties or something now. Um, or maybe even older than that and have never seen The Shining and then and then they give it a chance and they watch it and they just go yeah okay I guess it was kind of interesting but it was really slow and yeah there's some parts that were creepy but you know nothing that stands out like you know in the horror I've seen and it's like okay and then they go I guess this movie could have been something different if you saw it like in 81 or whatever, but I don't think it's that good now. I've heard that so many times on people I got Agreed. convinced to watch The Shining. I agree. And then the other movie that falls in that category 
Well, besides Star Wars, that's an obvious one if someone watches it for the first time now. Um, what's the other one? Oh! I have a cousin. He's about 13 years younger than me. But he and I are very much um, movie lovers in the same vein. And we usually agree uh, on whatever movie we happen to watch, new or old. Like We usually have very similar tastes. And something that was glaring as a blank in his film watching history was the, the Godfather, any of them. And I kept telling him for years, dude, you gotta watch the Godfather, you gotta watch the Godfather. And so I finally got it for him for Christmas like maybe three years ago. And he was like, oh cool, I guess I'm gonna watch the Godfather, finally. And, and he watched the first one and, and he was just like, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess if I'd never seen a gangster movie before, like, this would be interesting. And, oh and, you know, I guess, you know, for the early 70s when it came out, I could see how groundbreaking it could be then. But it's, it's like, it, it just had, like, lesser versions of things I've seen a hundred times in, the, in other gangster movies. Like, newer gangster movies. Hmm. And see? So that, that's, how, that's how I hear you talk about slacker because you're not wrong because those people aren't wrong technically in what they're saying about the shining or the godfather but you know it's it's still shocking to hear if you look at those movies from a different point of view than what they viewed it as yeah no i mean had i seen this in 1991 if i was alive i'm i'm sure i would have been blown away well again i wasn't blown away in 95 <laughs> it was not i i told you it it did not live up it was way overhyped in my opinion, at the time. It was extremely over. It was the indie movie that everybody has to see. It's kind of like what people said about Roma. Like, that one was very hyped up in the media, and I knew, oh, quote-unquote, wow. regular people who watched it and were just like, oh, my God, I couldn't get past the first 15 minutes. Nobody was talking. I'm so pissed they released it on Netflix because I constantly forget that it exists. But I love Alfonso Cuaron, so I'm like, I gotta see this fucking movie. I bet the brilliant director. Oh, you bastard! But uh, Slacker's fantastic, but it's just a starting place, of course, for Linklater. And I'm hoping if you see more of his talkies, um, you'll have a greater appreciation. He definitely matures and develops as a filmmaker. It's not a perfect upward slope of a graph, like every movie gets better. But no, of course, it's not. It's not like that. But as a whole, he definitely develops. And and as much as I love Slacker, and I know we don't rate. I mean, it's a 5 out of 5. It's a 5 out of 5. But Oh, wow. Oh, uh, there's, there's no question about it in my mind. But that being said, even if I give it out a 5 out of 5, it's not necessarily my favorite Linklater movie or my first to put on. Um, you know, because as many times as I've seen this, I've seen Days and Confused more times. Um, whatever that means um, and the trilogy I absolutely mother effing adore now those movies okay this movie is a masterpiece slacker when you judge it based on its budget the ability of the director at the time you know the time year it was made the equipment etc it's a masterpiece and that's it like when you when you um, grade it on a curve or in context um, the trilogy is just a film masterpiece full stop. You don't have to, you know, quantify it or justify it or put it. 
it just is you know what i mean like it just stands on its own you don't have to explain this is a first time director or you know whatever those are just amazing movies so just because i give this a five doesn't mean it's better than that or it doesn't mean it's the best thing that Linklater has ever done because that's not true uh it's just a unique five given its coordinates in space and time uh it just it just it just it's thing that just hit at the right time for it for itself um but there's definitely a bunch of movies he has that are so much more superior to this pound for pound but again that's in a different context yeah if, if you want to do the before trilogy i've i've wanted to see them for years when the last one came out i got so hyped to see them and then i just somehow never got around to it it's i, I do that so often well but we can try the first at some point and then if you dig it we can continue those are what i was saying is those are full stop masterpieces as far as i'm concerned yet i would barely watch those movies once every two years once every three years so what i'm saying is the frequency that i watch a particular link later movie doesn't necessarily correspond to where it ranks like in his catalog because some of those movies you know they're like certain types of food dishes they're amazing but you have to time it right you can't eat it every day you can't eat it every month you know it's gotta be the right time hmm. yeah well for, for me un- unfortunately for slacker i would probably rate it 2.5 maybe if you catch me on the right day i'd rate it three out of out of five see you sound like me rating um multiple maniacs when it's my <laughs> first john waters experience at least knowingly uh I saw Hairspray on television, but I had no idea. I wasn't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah. So Yeah, it, it. I kept thinking of Multiple Maniacs when I was watching this. Well, that's what made me think about... That made me think of this when we were watching it. That's part of why I suggested it. Oh, that's, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're similar in ways where it's like a filmmaker, you know, finding his feet but not quite landing on them. Like, he kind of lands on his ass, even though he's a lot of the things that he would later make brilliantly. Are, are present in the movie they just don't quite come together to the hole that he would eventually get to yeah and i actually think the the plow commentary is very worth listening to because it's sort of like the whole commentary is like a prelude to link later the filmmaker like he's kind of like his own memoir um more than just being a commentary about that actual little um test piece um but i think he's actually humble in a good way uh, in that commentary in which because he talks about how a lot of filmmakers who are established now many of them don't like to revisit their earliest work because they think it's shit or like they never want to see it again or they want it to be destroyed because it doesn't represent them now uh, and and he's just like no he's like I'm okay with it he's like you know I'm okay with this because like I'm talking about the plow movie because he's like when I made it like he's like that's all i was capable of doing you know Hmm. he he that was the best he could produce at that point in his like filmmaker learning studies because again he didn't ever have any formal training or anything in filmmaking he never had like a mentor show him or teach him he's all self-taught so he explains yeah i had tons of limitations besides the budget and everything he had the limitations of just not knowing how to do things and that's literally why he did plow and he did his best 
And he says when he looks back, he thinks he did pretty good, considering, like, the the the, the gaps in knowledge that he had at the time. So he, he's, like, okay with it. And I'm okay with it, yeah. too. <laughs> he, he frames some great shots. The sound design in that movie, I think, is horrible. Again, there's scenes where people are talking. It, it's totally low-budget stuff where you're like, I can't even understand what they're saying in this scene here. This movie... I mean, there's that scene where you can see the boom mic, but other than that, I think the filmmaking prowess just stepped up at least 78%. Well, he says, like, you know, it was, Plow was a complete solo project. It was just him, and he was literally carrying his equipment across the country by himself, setting up the tripod by himself, all done by himself. Whereas with Slacker, he's like, I actually had a crew of between 16 to 15 people, depending on which scene or shot we're talking about. So... Yeah, that's why he says it was his biggest leap in filmmaking because uh, he went from like homespun to actually some legitimacy and I like how so you know he produced this movie on $23,000 um, to get um, his friends and others to help as either crew or act in the movie he had to you know basically promise um, to pay them if and when there was profits so once it was finished he owed everybody and you know he started trying to get it into some film festivals and it was initially like dismissed or ignored but then he submitted it to this film festival in seattle and they just thought oh there's something here there's something here um or actually no i think before that happened he kind of knew a guy in the business who was known for finding like indie gems and he gave it to that guy like a copy of the movie he didn't know what that guy was gonna think but apparently that guy showed it to some of his other filmmaker friends and they thought eh, there's something here and so two weeks later um they gave him an offer to buy it off him for 100k and he oh, was wow. just like wow um now of course he said that was he said that was not even enough to pay back all the favors so he he sort of just barely broke even himself um but then they, you know, they distributed the movie, and it actually grossed like over a million dollars. So it's like one point two million or something domestic. So I just think, wow. I mean, success. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Success, hundred percent. You made somewhat of a well, you didn't quite make a profit, but you broke even. Yeah, but you made it happen. As an independent filmmaker, I mean, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I've got no, I've got no knocks for him. I mean, these kind of practice projects. He had a successful career out of it, so I mean, good on him. But if I had to make like a list of like most significant, top 10 most significant movies, significant to the decade of the 90s, um, this has to be on my top 10 list. It has to be. And I'm not saying it's in the top 10 best movies of the 90s. No, that's not what I'm saying. But significance, having a place, having a significant meaning to that decade, uh, or, or, or um, the 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 essence, the the milieu of the '90s that 100%. tapping directly into it. This has to be on my top ten list of movies that that just tap into or reflect the '90s. Yeah, for indie filmmakers, I mean, this was their this was the vein that they were tapping into exactly. There were so many people ripped this off. Yeah, it, and and even Tarantino, you could say, was influenced by this. And I tend to think of so much of the '90s shaped by Tarantino. 
but it, it really goes back to this in a way. I mean, I always thought Kevin Smith was kind of aping Tarantino. Yeah, and just like all the other filmmakers, when you listen to them talk, like, you know, he was inspired, you know, by Kubrick, like, because everybody was at the time, and, you know, and, and these other um, well-known, like, independent, like, like new wave French cinema directors and all he was he had all the same influences that everybody had and he made this little movie slacker and then he in turn influenced so many filmmakers that came after him with this silly little movie mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah i kept thinking of uh gummo have you ever seen that no but i definitely i'm definitely aware of it and heard of it and yeah and i will watch it one day yeah, Harmony Corinne is another one of these 90s filmmakers where I don't necessarily know where I fall in him. There's so many 90s movies that I loved when I was a teenager that I look back on where I'm like... Did you ever see Kids? I never saw Kids, no. That's another one that is like somehow shares DNA with the Tarantino-verse of the 90s and the slackers of the world. Even though it's neither of those movies, but yet you feel there is a DNA connection. Um, and that's that's another... If, if Slacker kicked off the 90s, uh, Kids was like the independent movie that was closing out the 90s. Uh, but yeah, catch you guys next time on some other show. Peace. I just saw the boom mic. I read about it in the IMDb trivia and I just saw it. Yes. Yes. Oh boy. <laughs>